Welcome to Let's Talk Diabetes, a podcast from Diabetes UK in Northern Ireland. Throughout this series, we'll be chatting everything diabetes with healthcare professionals, people from the Diabetes UK team and people living with diabetes in Northern Ireland. Hello and welcome to Diabetes UK in Northern Ireland's podcast, Let's Talk Diabetes, and the mini Our Lives, Our Voices takeover. This is episode nine of the podcast and the second from Our Lives, Our Voices. This episode will be exploring periods of change and managing your diabetes during these times. But first, let me introduce who we'll be hearing from today. So I'm Sam Cormack. I am the youth coordinator for Our Lives, Our Voices, which is a youth-led group for young people living with type 1 diabetes in Northern Ireland aged between 11 and 25. We also have Shan. Shan, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, my name's Shan. I am the youth worker here at Diabetes UK Northern Ireland, and I have type 1 diabetes. I was diagnosed when I was four, so I have had diabetes now for 23 years. Thank you very much, Shan. And we also have Holly, our special guest today. Holly, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, uh, I'm Holly. I am one of the youth leaders on the Our Lives, Our Voices project. I've been part of it since the very beginning, so like since 2019, so been here a while. I have been diagnosed since I was 10, so about 14 years, and I am currently a freelance stage manager when I'm not doing Our Lives, Our Voices work. Fantastic, thank you Holly. Really excited to have you with us Holly, it's going to be really interesting to get your your opinion and your experiences today. So if you have listened to our previous episode you will have heard that Our Lives Our Voices is driven forward by the young people and the topics of these episodes were no different. So when we were discussing what we should be covered, uh, the topic of change came up really regularly. So that's exactly what we're talking through today. So change is a part of life that we all go through a lot. Some change is planned and over times it can come out of the blue. We all have our different views and ways of managing change, which is okay. And we all find our own path eventually. However, when we add type 1 diabetes into the mix, into the equation of this change, it can be a completely different factor. It'd be something that really needs to have some focus. So that's what we're going to explore today, the considerations and the changes you need to make alongside to make sure that you are managing your diabetes as well as you can. So today we're going to be looking at some of the changes that most young people will experience at some stage and how they will manage alongside living with type 1 diabetes. What I thought we would do today was sort of go through the different changes and sort of start at probably one of the changes that most of you will experience, probably the first big one when you start to get a bit more independence. So and that will be looking at starting secondary school and maybe actually once you're at secondary school maybe the change of each year going to the new year and the change of teachers. So, Holly, I'll come to you first. What was this experience like for you, this starting secondary school? What what was that like for you? It was, like, really difficult because I got diagnosed at the end of my first month of secondary school. So I was in a new situation, making fre- like trying to make friends, wondering why I felt tired all the time, why I was, like, so thirsty, like, why I wasn't just, like, fully enjoying settling into a new school. And at the end of that first month, I was then diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and kind of spent where everyone was making their like formulative like friends and like their groups in hospital. So then I came back and I was then the girl who had a medical condition who would have to leave class every so often to like treat a low blood sugar and like go to like the treatment room and kind of miss class. So it was like really difficult with all of like this the change of just going to a secondary school in the first place, but then you add on top getting diagnosed with a medical condition. So it was definitely a big change. And when I was lucky that I had 
my mum, who's very much an advocate for me in school to kind of make sure I got what I needed, like being able to carry my pens with me, being able to inject, uh, and having my diabetes support team to kind of tell me what I would be kind of looking out for in school. Like, you might need to do this, you might need to leave class like five minutes earlier to be able to get to like the lunch queue to get your injections done in time. Because I was at that time on two injections a day. Diabetes has come on leaps and bounds in the preceding years, but at that time it was like two a day and one of them was at school. So definitely weird being the girl who had to deal with that straight out the gate. I mean, I can only imagine, as you touched on there, obviously the transition into high school is a real big challenge for everyone. <laughs> and then to add into that, this new diagnosis as well. You sort of highlight that your mum was a good support. Did you receive support from school? How, what was their approach to learning you had this new diagnosis? It was kind of, I think, like, from what I could tell, they did have other people with diabetes in the school, but what was really weird was they didn't like let us know who each other were. You only kind of found out who they were if you just like spotted them in the wild and you're like, you are one of the other four. <laughs> so my mum, because my mum's a nurse growing up like, for years as well, she kind of had her head on it being like, okay, you're going to need some support. The school, like the diabetes team contacted my school to be like, here's a new diagnosed um, person who is coming in. The way they my school dealt with it in the first place was your injection stayed in the treatment room, like all medical things stayed in this treatment room and that you go there for all the things. But I found that that didn't work for me a lot because if I was having like, for example, a low blood sugar up on like the third floor in geography, walking down to the very ground floor in the opposite end of the school to go and get my hypo treatment was not working. It happened once. <laughs> And I had a teacher carry me out of class because I looked like I had one foot in the grave and it was not working out. So we like then petitioned to just let me carry my pens and carry hypo treatments with me so that I could be able to just go through school normally and not miss class. Because my blood sugar seemed to realise I don't like maths and would always take a hypo during maths class. And one time my teacher did check up on me to make sure I was where I said I was. And I was like, I'm here. Not just using the diabetes gap. No, I'm like sitting there with my glass of leukosine. <laughs> like, I promise I would be in your class if I had a choice. And Sham, I'll come to you. Holly sort of touch on teachers there. So, obviously, to be, to be a teacher in secondary school, you don't have to have an understanding of diabetes. Mm-hmm. But having a child, uh, people in your class with diabetes, it obviously would be a benefit for them to have an understanding. What was your experience with teachers through high school? Well, when I started secondary school, I was the only person in my school with type 1. I had quite a benefit where I moved from primary school with friends. So they had been through primary school with me. They knew what was going on. Within the actual school itself, there was my form teacher who had um, had many conversations with my mum about what my diabetes was like, kind of management that I would do. And then we had the school office. So kind of similar to Holly where there was like the treatment room that you could go to. I was able to keep my insulin on me, but um, it was, I could go there to to do my insulin and stuff before lunch. Um, And I had my hypo supplies on me, but there was also hypo supplies in in the office as well. So I was given a green card um, during school. So if I had anything that I wanted to go off and I needed to go to the bathroom to check sugars or I wanted to do that, like not in front of the class, um, I was able to do that. The 
registered all had like a wee dot beside my name so that identified that I was type 1 so that if there was a cover teacher or whatever that they knew um, ahead of time that um, there's a possibility that something could happen with me so yeah I found it quite supportive in school I find if I had any issues all teachers were very open to that I guess the only experience I had maybe not great with the teacher was wanting to go on chick ed and they kind of saw taking someone with type 1 as a bit too big of a risk. So I didn't get to do my Duke of Ed for award. I know. I've been great at it. I also missed out on my Duke of Ed. I also missed out on a power strip because it happened like a month after I was diagnosed. So it was like, I'm not going to go for the safety of myself. Yeah. But obviously it's like bonding experiences you miss out on because you're trying to like look after a condition. Definitely. Well, I think you had, you had a really important point there, Holly. You sort of said from when you were diagnosed you missed them maybe formative months mm-hmm. of forming friendships and then I've seen Shanna's highlight them missing out the Duke of Edinburgh and these are stories you hear quite regularly about opportunities that young people living with type 1 are missing out on through probably not a choice of teachers or organisations but through potential worry and fear so I was really I'll pose it to both of you really what do you think we could do or would be helpful for teachers to to reduce that worry? So, Sham, what would you say to that teacher now that didn't want to do it? But how would you help them? I think if they had the knowledge of understanding that a person with type 1 can go up in the mornings and go camping if everything is prepared prior to that, so having those conversations with my parents. Um, and it also kind of... I think for young people, you do need that push sometimes. So maybe it is comfortable not going and doing that type of thing. But for me, it would have boosted my confidence a lot. It would have showed me that I can achieve this. So if that kind of support beforehand would have been brilliant. And I think it's just realising that young people can achieve these things. And I think having yeah the support and knowledge behind and checking with parents if there's if they can come to us definitely at Diabetes UK but if there's just that bit of knowledge behind it okay so maybe taking the time to do the wider research rather than leaning on maybe the worry Mm -hmm. and pushing themselves making sure they're informed as best they can be and use experience of the parents and young person themselves definitely okay fantastic well, what we'll do, we'll start moving on to our maybe our next big change that uh, both of you may have experienced. So we'll look at the going on to university, which I know you both did, and that first big move out of the family home. So this is a change, again, that most young people go through at some point, moving out of the family home. But again, once we add type 1 diabetes into the mix, it has a lot of different layers to it. So, Shan, well, let's go to you. Mm-hmm. So... What were your feelings and emotions when you were building up towards that first time you were moving out to go to university? Um, I do think there was a lot of nerves. I think beforehand I had chose unis over here because I had made that decision as... Not that I didn't feel prepared, but I think it was just a big enough change of going to uni and a big change in my life that then changing country would have been just a bit much for me at the time. Um, So it was nerve-wracking. My mum and dad both remained very cool and calm throughout it all, so that was really helpful. Um, So if I was panicking, I knew they were a phone call away, everything would be all right. 
and I was going to a new place where I didn't know anyone so I kind of didn't have that backup that I did when I was starting secondary school so it's kind of I think similar to how you maybe felt starting secondary school Holly and Holly, I know you had a move, Sham was discussing staying in Northern Ireland, you obviously had your move over to Wales. Yeah. <laughs> so a bit less of a safety blanket with uh, the mum and dad not just down the road. So how did you manage that? Yeah, because I was looking, like, my first, like, move was to, like, a school in Northern Ireland, but also I went over to do a master's in Wales, which suddenly I had so much more that I had to deal with that I didn't realise I had to take care of because for all of my life I had that like immediate safety blanket with me. I had my mum was there. She was coming to like appointments with me because like I, of various reasons I just needed my mum with me on like certain appointments. I like was still with my pharmacy that I'd been with since I'd gotten diagnosed. I got used to the people there around me and my team. And then I moved country and then had to deal with kind of finding a GP and registering with the GP over there because I couldn't just nip home on the weekends and grab my prescription, registering with a pharmacy and then just kind of dealing with issues that came up and like going to doctor's appointments by myself, which was a massive change that now that I'm like have been doing it for a while, I'm kind of used to it now. But when I first started out, it was very overwhelming, especially when I'd moved out away from my family really for the first time because for my undergrad I was just two hours up the road but now I was a flight away and I couldn't just be like mom I need you to help me like come up to me and help me like it was what can I do to fix it or sometimes like I'll hold my hands up and say sometimes I just hand the phone to my mom because there's only so much I can do to help a situation but people seem to listen to my mom more than they listen to me sometimes and sometimes you just got to call in reinforcements that'll get the job done and not think that you're feeling at it. Sometimes the support system is good to help you. And, oh, like, that's what they're there for. And I think that's what mums love to do. As mm. well as you come and save the day sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you sort of said about, you touched on going to a clinic appointment, maybe mm-hmm. for your first time then. And I think that's a really interesting point because especially for yourselves being diagnosed so young, a lot of the responsibility is put on to parents to manage the condition, to make all the organisation and to make sure the prescriptions are picked up. When did you find, Holly, that you did start taking sort of some more independence in this? Because obviously that would be a big change for yourself, but I'm sure it's also a big change for your mum. And so you say mum took a lot of responsibility there. How did you manage that changeover? Was it as you from when you moved over to Wales or... Uh, moved down to the new school in Belfast or did you put plans in place before that? It was kind of like I was very lucky that my mother's raised me to be like a very independent woman Um, even from like the first time I took my injections in hospital they had a hard time getting her to do the injection to get me discharged because I was so ready to just take on my injection and just be like right I can do it because I didn't want anyone coming at me with a needle I was like I'll do it myself it's fine (laughs) but then obviously to get discharged, it has to prove that a parent or some a guardian can indeed give you an injection. And luckily I had a high blood sugar that she could like prove that she could inject me on to get me released because I was like, it's your fault, you raised me independent. So, <laughs> but luckily growing up, I was quite able to like look after it myself with a lot of help with my mom when I did fall, but she was very much like, this is your condition now, you do have to look after it. Like, I'm not always going to be around. Like, she prepared me from a young age. And that's not to say she wasn't always there to help, because she was, but she's very much like, this is something you are going to have to live with. So I very much threw myself into, like, researching it and figuring it out myself. 
and then coming to mum and being like, did you know that this is how, like, this affects my blood sugar and this happens? And she'd take me to, like, my choice programme, like, to learn how to carb count and stuff like that. So I was kind of very prepared going to uni and then going to my undergrad, she was still there. She'd always have the um, campus security number to give me a wake-up call if I had had a low blood sugar or something, which my, luckily, like, my siblings went to the same uni as me. And my brother was like the residential assistant, so he was like able to be on hand as well, and so was my sister. So when my mum would schedule a wake-up call for 5am, she would go with them, because I have a startle reflex when I wake up, and she was like, for your safety, I'm waking my sister up. <laughs> um, but then when I, like, we implemented a system when I first went to my undergrad was I'd give her a good morning text and a good night text that included what my blood sugar was. Okay. So I'd be like... I'm off to bed, my blood sugar is like 9.6, it's going steady, I've had a snack. I'd text her as soon as I woke up, being like, it is now this, I've had my breakfast, I'm going to do this, this is where I'll be for the day. Because it was very much our first time being away from each other. So I was like, here's where I'll be if I stop responding. And as the years of my degree went on, those kind of details um, stepped away. Like It was very much like, I don't have to tell her where I'll be every second of the day, but to this day, a uh, good morning, good night text with my blood sugar included okay. is still like a part of our routine. Even when I'm at home and she's at work, I wake up, I text her and I'm like, this is my blood sugar. Um, because it's just our routine now and she gets worried if she doesn't see it. And I'm sure that's probably, I just, she would get worried if she didn't see that. And so it probably eases her any more easy concerns your mum may have. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that's probably now for you as well. Like yeah. Knowing that actually you have fed that information out. So there is someone not, not directly involved, but yeah. just in the background being able to keep an eye. So a little point you highlighted there is on the campus security, having that direct number as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably a really good piece of advice as someone looking to move, moving away for the first time to university, yeah. having those contacts pre-prepared rather than getting to the stage where you suddenly need that number and having to try and search for it or trying to, trying to track someone down. So actually I think having that plan in place is probably a really important part of the of the transition to moving out for the first time yeah because even now like in each of the places like I've lived my like luckily like when I lived in Belfast after like I moved out of halls I live with someone else with diabetes um so she would have their number like anyone I live with and we always have like one person I live with to have my mother's number she will have their number so if I don't respond to them she can call them and be like hey is Holly alive and usually the answer is yes I've just slept in or I've forgotten to text you but she'll give me like a phone call before she calls someone else because sometimes I've just left my phone behind me still near me but usually I'm in the kitchen and it's in my room or something I'm like I am alive I just forgot <laughs> perfect I think that actually nicely moves us into when you first moved into halls and you're moving in with new people that you've not met before how did you approach that explaining your diabetes Sham did you open up to them immediately that you had diabetes or were you a bit more reluctant to do this? Yeah, so I moved out actually in my final year, so it wasn't halls, it was just rented accommodation. Um, so I had made friends in my second year because I had moved uni and so they had known me for a year and from hanging out and different things, like obviously they had um, seen that I was diagnosed and I was able to chat through with them quite comfortably. Um, all the things that I do and stuff. So when I'd made the decision to move out, um, my mum came around to have a chat with my new housemates, which is um, 
it was actually really nice. It made me feel a bit more secure and kind of that when I come home, if I am having maybe like a hypo or something like that, that I know that there's someone in the house who understands, knows where everything is. So that was really reassuring. Um, but yeah, I think the conversations with the girls in my house were brilliant. They were really keen to support me. And if we were doing like house dinners or things like that, they were really intrigued and always wanted to help out with like my carb counting and things like that. So I really, really appreciated that. That's fantastic. So you feel that they, they probably got a lot from that as well, actually. Were they keen to understand more rather than seeing it as a potential hindrance? Actually, they, they were interested to find out how they can support you and what actually entailed do you manage it day to day? Yeah, definitely. They were really keen and they would like bring hypo supplies and stuff with them as well if we were going out anywhere. So it was really good. Me feel a lot better. Fantastic. And I think, yeah. again, circling back to that feeling of safety, as we still touch on you, Holly, obviously, I know when you, your mum's there, keep an eye on, and again, Shan, you having that knowledge that actually the people you're living with have an understanding and know how to respond if needed. I think when we're feeling unsafe, I think that's when it can become a, a worry for people mm-hmm. and worry for yourselves, and that's why you want to try and limit that as much as possible. Um, when we can look at moving out of university and moving into your home for your first time, it's that first independence, really. Mm-hmm. And being in control of your days and managing your days, how would you manage the longer days, the preparing your own meals? Holly, how did you organise your day to make sure that you were keeping on top of your diabetes management? Um, so obviously, like as I said, I'm a stage manager now, which does kind of like lend itself to really long days. Like sometimes I am working 13 hour days, so I'm like 9am to like 10pm, sometimes 11pm when I get out. And... My biggest thing is to make sure, like, if I know that day is coming up, is I have my meals prepped beforehand, they're in my bag, I have... I usually um, pack hypo supplies as if I'm going to have, like, seven in a day. Because I'm like, I'd rather look at it and be like, I know it's there, than take, like, one or two and be like, well, I can't treat a hypo now because I don't have enough. So I just make sure I have double, triple packed my hypo treatments. I make sure I have, like biscuits or like a banana in my bag usually as well and I just make sure to let whoever I'm working with to be like hey I have this condition like I might need to like step away to inject or check a blood sugar or treat a low blood sugar I'll have to sit out for 20 minutes just so like they're ahead of time and they like they know so that I'm not just sitting there like sweating away kind of disassociating and swaying so it's just to make sure people around me know that this is a possibility that I'm generally I can take care of it myself, but that if something arises, yeah. they know that's not a shock to them. And talk about planning there, Shan. Was that something that you found really important for yourself? Definitely. Um, I think even having that at the beginning, where my mum came in and spoke to my housemates, it kind of gave them. I think because it was like my mum coming, they were like, "Oh, we have to take this seriously." So um, having that and planning food. My stepdad had also mentioned about getting these wee lights, which are actually really helpful, so they're motion-censored. So we put them on the stairs so that if I was having a hypo and I could walk down and actually see where I was going because obviously vision isn't great when you're having a hypo. Um, Just kind of having that planning in place was really good um, and being able to lean on others for that planning is really helpful. Even going to different things like concerts that maybe were for a length of a day that um, I wasn't home for like certain meals so it was having that planning ahead that I could say okay 
is there food stalls here? How am I going to bring my hypo supplies? How am I going to bring um, my insulin with me? Um, and just the activities of the day, if I'm drinking alcohol, is there like food places for after? And just that everyone who was with me kind of was aware that um, I have type 1 and what to do in those situations was really helpful. Fantastic. So yeah, being prepared, I think that's a, a big takeaway mm-hmm. of planning what you're going to do, being prepared and having people around you that also know the plan. Mm-hmm. I think you can do the best plan in the world, but if you're suddenly the one having a hypo, and you're the only one that knows the plan, that's probably not going to actually help that yeah. much. You need someone else to be to be up, up to speed on what your plans are. Well, we'll move on to our next big change, and one that starts at different ages for certain young people, but moving into work. How do you manage that first job? I'll go to you, Holly. How, what was it like going into your first role of employment whilst managing type 1 diabetes? It was definitely like a big change, because my first job was like when I was like quite older, so... I worked in a wee coffee shop and it was difficult like transitioning into working when you have diabetes because I suddenly was like on my feet all day whereas I was used to not doing that all day. I was suddenly like busy, like I was in a shop that had like quite rush hours that you had you had to like get things out and done quickly. So it was kind of like learning how to like manage your blood sugar during that because before you're in that situation, you can't tell how your blood sugar is going to react. You can kind of guess it the best you can. But until you're like in a rush and you're like, oh, here's where my blood sugar spikes and here's where it crashes, um, it's hard to like guess that transition. So I was kind of struggling with that, like my okay. first job. And I just like kind of had to know like what my rights were in a workplace and be like, I need this help. Um, I Can I please like have this help? And getting that help was... I'm saying help a lot, but it helped me a lot in being able to work without having the worry of my diabetes, knowing that there was something put in place for me to be able, like, I had to fight for it a little bit because the workplace just didn't know about diabetes. It's a learning curve for everybody, and to, like, kind of assume that a workplace knows what to do at all times is something that you can't really do because everyone with diabetes is different, but also what you need out of a workplace is different depending on your needs. So kind of communicating that helped me a lot more to then work and be good at doing my job, even if it was a bit tricky at the start. And how did you feel about making that with work, with what the, the level of support you needed? I was like really anxious about doing that because I don't like being difficult. I don't like people seeing me vulnerable and I don't like making an issue about things. When I was like a lot younger, even though I'd had diabetes for years, because I was so used to like my mum being able to help me approach issues and she was very much my spokesperson. With this work, it was the first time I had raised an issue and been like, I need this help. So for me to say, I was like, maybe it's just fine if I just struggle and I uh, don't do this. And I was like, no, for your health, you have to look after yourself because you're not going to do anyone any favours if your blood sugars are like going up too high or you're feeling miserable when you can't just like raise this issue and get it fixed so it's just kind of like knowing like then reaching out to like support systems and like doctors and even like peer support groups and being like is anyone else having these kind of not issues but kind of know what it's like to work like this and is there anything I should know and then going into meetings with information and knowing my rights to kind of be like hey, would be helpful if you could put some of these in place because I didn't know exactly what I needed until I read some of it sometimes. I'm like, that would be helpful for me. Like, 
this having a, like maybe an extra break after a rush hour so that I can manage my blood sugars even if it's just like five minutes to be able to dip away and check my blood sugars and like have a, something to eat would really help so I didn't know to ask for that until I knew that was something I could ask for. I think that's a really key point as well you're saying it's learning from other people's experiences mm-hmm. as well and I think that's one of the you know key points of the Our Lives Our Voices project is we have such a wide range of young people of ages that have been through so many different experiences so some of the younger ones coming through to take the advice and experience from the older young people is fantastic because actually yes everyone's journey and experience is slightly different but there will be some key such as starting work to know like so knowing your rights knowing what should be available to yourself so i think that's really important to not feel you on your own mm-hmm. to not feel that you have to manage it on your own to to reach out to to do your research you said or even just ask the question lots of people have been in a very similar situation that could be really positive to do what about yourself shan how are your experiences maybe with employers have you had positive experiences challenging experiences yeah so i've had positive experiences with my employers um and i think when i was trying to decide on a career that diabetes kind of influenced it more than I thought so we all know that diabetes loves routine and you're kind of told in appointments like that you need to keep this routine like your nine to five type of thing so I kind of thought oh jobs where I'd be maybe working nights or overnights or maybe not something that I'd be able to do so I kind of steered away from that but as you say it's that learning from others and chatting um Holly that you can find out these things are manageable like you can do that my employers um, have been great so far, like they've um, been really supportive. I've worked in bar work, which I think was probably the most intense because you had different shift patterns, you had busy days, you had days where like a few people came in that was quite quiet. So my employer was really on it in terms of knowing that, okay, what time do you need to have your dinner? What time do you need to have your lunch? Those times are strictly for you, you have to take that time. and. There was like that kind of feeling of guilt if it was like a really, really busy shift and I could see like the team were just sweating and getting like into a a frantic panic. But I knew if I don't go and like have my dinner and make sure my bloods are okay, then I'm going to be no use to them when I come back. So it's taken that time to think, okay, I actually do have to put myself and my health first here, um, which has been really helpful. Oh, absolutely. If you were on a shift, you sort of touch on bar, but then the same for you as well, these sort of really busy times in the cafe. How would you manage a hypo? How did you have the plan in place agreed or was it deal with it when it came up? Holly, you're, you're, you're having a bit of a laugh to yourself there. I mean, have you got a story about this? Yes, and I'd like to preface this is that do not follow my advice on this because it is not the most advisable. Because in an ideal world, you can like step away and mm-hmm. take your 20 minutes, sit down. And this is just the experience I had is because I worked in like such a busy, t- like busy store. Sometimes it was me just like while I was like at a coffee machine, I'd unscrew my lucas, like throw it back and then just continue in my job and just keep checking my blood sugars like every five minutes to make sure it was rising up. And then just keeping going until I had my schedule break. So not advisable, but very much just what I had to do. Um, because even after I'd had my meeting with, with the manager, I felt too, like awkward to say, oh, I need to like take out for like when I had um, low blood sugars. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'll just trade it. I'll just like, I had the like 
um, management side, I could keep my Lucasade where I was working. But I was just like, I felt like, like I felt guilty for stepping out if I needed to treat a low blood sugar. So I did the inadvisable thing of treating it while I was working. And if I like could do that job again with what I know now, I would say I need to step out when I have low blood sugars. But I was still kind of finding my way and standing up for myself for the first time. So very much did a few things that I now looking back would do differently. Yeah. And I, I would say that's exactly, I think that's quite experience a lot of people have. It's that, I mean, we do learn. And it's a, at that time you're both thinking, I don't want to stand out too much. I don't want to be too much of a hindrance to other people working or I don't want to make it look like I can't do my job. But I think as you've highlighted there, from it comes back to actually, you need to put yourself first. There is a level of expectation that an employer provides a safe space for all employees, regardless of what condition they may have. So I think that's a really important point to highlight there is that you need to stick to what's safe for you. Yeah. And to have that conversation, you said you had had that conversation, but actually, if it's not being safe at the end of the day, maybe that's another conversation that we would advise people to have to make sure that you do take the time to treat any hyper because the risk that could be involved there would be too high mm-hmm. and we wouldn't want you to be going through that. Yeah, because I think the big thing is knowing that it's not just one conversation and done. You are allowed mm-hmm. to have more than one conversation. Like You don't have to have everything in a row when you have your conversation. You can go back to them and be like, hey, as I've just as I've done this job, I've realised I do need a bit more support and like that's okay because I think we get so stuck into proving that we can look after ourselves and we're like we can manage our diabetes we can do this we can do anything that anything outside of the norm and having to ask for help you're like yeah. oh no they're going to think I can't do my job when really when you ask for help that is helping you to do your job effectively and not a hindrance that I think a lot of people kind of feel when they need to ask for that help mm-hmm. definitely I think it's like you you don't want to feel like a burden you do want to prove that no I can do this job it's just not going to take over my life like I can do this but it is those experiences through work that you find are going to affect you differently so I knew when there was a busy shift or something like that and when I get stressed my blood sugars do go high and it's knowing then how to manage that prior and post the shift and during it and having those conversations and making sure like my team knew what to be aware of and how if I didn't come forward, what things to look out for like uh, could be going on that um, maybe I just haven't shared at that point. But it was having that safe team that was able to, you could say, like, look, blood sugars are low here and I need to go and take that time out. And they did like allow me. Um, but it was a couple of conversations, as you say, it's not just one thing. If you're going through a job, you don't know what it's going to be like. You don't know how your body's going to react to different situations. So... Yeah, it's really important. I think we have heard from employers before that actually they want to be as supportive and helpful as they can be. But as we all well know, unless you have a direct impact on type 1 diabetes, people's knowledge is quite limited. So actually, by having those conversations, Shan, as you highlighted there, that could actually be just providing enough information for your manager, for shift work, whoever's in, in control of that shift, actually that's this is what they I need this is how you can support me not to be worried about saying the wrong thing or doing nothing if you're quite instructive that this is how you can help me best that's probably 
would be really useful for them mm-hmm. rather than trying to guess or not to not to try and offend in any way definitely and I also think it's having that conversation because your manager is probably concerned too and is worried so if you are having a low and we've had this conversation like if I have gone low and I know how to treat it I know I'm feeling fine but reassuring you letting you know like I'm okay so I think it's a two-way street because yes it is your condition but people are wanting to look out for you as well so it's making sure that they feel that they're included to support you as much as they can definitely okay so we've sort of touched on a few plan changes that we all experience let's move on to unexpected changes there's lots that happen in our life things that we don't see coming things that spring up and shock us and do you have anything in place to to try and plan for these so it could be changes such as illness that you're not expecting to have or maybe a sudden change of job or change of living accommodation have you experienced these what sort of advice would you have for people experiencing this for me like because my job like I'm a freelancer so I never have like a set employed space so I'm always like bopping around the country like sometimes I'm in Wales sometimes I'm in Northern Ireland working sometimes I'm out in the middle of a field for hours sometimes I'm in a nice wee theatre so it's kind of like knowing like having even if you have different plans in place for different areas so oh if I'm going to be inside and dry here's where I can leave things like if I'm out doing like site event work, I usually carry like one a, like a crossbody bag that has like my hypo treatments, like my injection pen, like maybe not my full blood kit, but it has like the hypo treatment, the pen, my blood monitor, like backup strips. It has snacks in there, so I'm like I don't have to like run and try and find my bag if I'm having an issue. I can just treat it there and then, and then having like words with your support system for like, say if you are struggling like. I will always sing my mother's praises because she is like, while I do have like the Our Lives Our Voices team and like I really appreciate the like lived experience, sometimes I just need my mum. <laughs> and I used to like feel really bad about saying that and being like, oh, I need, just need my mum. Like I felt like I was really childish, but sometimes you just need her. And she, like I fully say that I would not be the person or where I am today if it wasn't for my mum's support like throughout my entire life. So having like that solid support system that no matter what happens, you will be fine. I think that's a really lovely point, Holly. It's we've we've touched on a lot of changes there, a lot of new jobs, moving to new places of education or new homes. But having that constant, having that support that remains consistent and that you can lean on, be a parent, be it a friend, be it a colleague, just having someone that you know understands knowing that it's there for you to contact to on the good days, on the bad days, on the on the one when you just want to actually talk through something just to understand a bit better yourself. Having that support there, that's that's a real benefit for all this change because change can be scary. Change can be very challenging. It, it can be fantastic. It gives us so many opportunities, but it can be scary. So actually having that person to be able to contact, I think that's a really nice point to take away from this that actually whilst managing diabetes on the side of change, having someone that has been there for some time, someone that understands, someone that just gets it, it actually makes it all a little bit easier, a little bit more manageable, we could say. So, as we move into the end of the episode, I'm going to ask you both, uh, if you had one piece of advice or a top tip that you'd pass on to a young person who's about to experience some change, some change coming up, 
what would that be? Let's go to you first, Sharon. Yeah, I think mine would be that it's okay. You can put your health first. That is what is important. You're not a burden on people. Um, putting your health, your management, it's your diabetes. Like That's what's um, the most important thing is that you are feeling safe and that you might feel like maybe you are a burden on people if you're trying to maybe have to go off on a shift or if you're getting extra time in an exam or you've gone to a different room, things like that. It is a bit different, but what matters is that your health is the priority Absolutely. and you're not going to be your best self if your health isn't in line with that. Absolutely. And yourself, Holly? I think, like, mine would, like, yes, I, like, completely agree with you, John, but also, like, have your plans in place, like, so when you move to a new place, like, research, like, your pharmacies and your GPs before suddenly you're in the situation where you really need them mm-hmm. uh, so you don't like make yourself stressed and just just be planned like tell people like have your support system and have your plans in place and once you have those you're grand know your rights for things and speak up for yourself absolutely I think they're both fantastic points and I think what one's underneath all the points we a lot talked about today is communication mm-hmm. having strong lines of communication conversations that not keeping things to yourselves, not having those always speak, speak to supportive networks, speak to employees, educators, friends. They, it actually really does help. It really is beneficial. So thank you so much, Holly and Chan, for joining me today. And thank you to all of you for listening. Um, I hope this episode has been able to shine a light on some of the experience of young people living with type 1 and managing change. For anyone listening, if you have a particular subject you'd like to us to bring up on a podcast series please send us a message via social media at diabetes uk ni or send us an email using the address found in the episode notes thank you all so much and i look forward to you joining us for the next episode in let's talk diabetes thanks for joining us on let's talk diabetes remember to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode if you want to hear more from diabetes uk northern ireland follow us on social media at diabetes uk ni